We are in the middle of a series right now, the month of July. Our focus is on corporate spirituality. We focused in the month of June on individual spirituality. The first Sunday in July, we talked about the church as assembly. And when we talked about the church as assembly, we focused on the fact that when we gather in the house of God to worship, we're not simply gathering to meet with each other. In other words, if the reason why you stay at a particular church is because you like the people there, then you're missing the point. We're not gathering for the people. We gather for God. And that's why when we first come together to worship, the first thing we do is worship. The singing is there. We're looking upward, not outward. We're, look, we're going vertical, not horizontal. And so the first and foremost con- conception of what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ is that we are an assembly. And really, when we understand the church as an assembly, we begin to understand the cosmic dimensions of what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ. The church in heaven and the church on earth are one church. That means that Paul the apostle is a member of your church. Peter is a member of your church. John is a member of your church. Matthew, Mark, Luke, they're all members of our church. Why? Because whenever we come together as a local gathering, we begin worshiping God in the spirit. And in the spirit, as we begin to worship, we join our voices with the whole multitude of worshipers in heaven. So it's never just us in the room. It's always a gather, a multitude of, of worshipers worshiping God at the same time. And that's what it means that the church is the assembly of God. And then last Sunday, we talked about the church as the community of God. And when we talk about the church as community, we're talking about our interactions and our relationships with one another. It's not that we just gather as an assembly and not care about anybody else around us. No, we are both an assembly and a community. And these are the two commands that Jesus gave. When he was asked, what is the greatest commandment of the law? His answer was, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, on these two commands, hang the whole law and the prophets. When we're loving God directly, that's called the assembly, when we turn our hearts to the Lord. But when we love each other, that's called the community. And that's why we structure our services so that when we come in, the first thing we do is connect with God vertically. And the second thing we do is say, everybody start hugging folks around you so that we begin to stimulate community. We need both the assembly component and the community component, and they're important. Now, today we're going to take it a step further. And the last two messages, when we talked about the church as assembly, the church as community, we were focusing on the being of the church. That is, what is the church? But in this particular message, we're going to focus on the function of the church. That is, what does the church do? The specific question is, if you stick around, what are we going to try to do to you? What's going to happen to you if you stay here? And the answer to that question is pretty simple. The local church, the the function or purpose of the local church is what we call the process of discipleship. Now, discipleship is something very specific. Discipleship is simply the process by which we come to full maturity in our relationships with Jesus Christ. Discipleship is the process by which we grow up. And when we're talking about growing up, we cannot separate spiritual maturity from natural maturity ultimately. The two are connected because sometimes the spiritual foolishness that we get involved with simply has to do with the fact that we have not naturally matured in certain areas of our lives. So discipleship is the process by which we corporately grow up in our relationships with Jesus Christ. And I'll say at the outset of this message that we must understand that discipleship is inherently corporate. There are no self-taught disciples. There are no self-discipled people. Now, we know that pretty much in every other realm of human life, there are self-taught individuals. Say, who taught you how to play the piano? Oh, I taught myself. 
There's professional golfers in the PGA who taught themselves how to play golf, never took instructions, never took lessons. There's some fabulous self-taught musicians. There's fabulous people who are self-taught in virtually every realm of our society. But when it comes to discipleship, there are no self-discipled mature believers. There might be people who think that they're self-taught mature believers, but all they've done by claiming that they're self-taught is revealed their immaturity. Come on, somebody. So when we are talking about discipleship, we are talking about an inherently corporate reality, something that is not an individualistic endeavor. And, and, you know, when it comes down to it, who you are and what you are always develops as a corporate reality. When you're talking about learning to play golf, you can be a self-taught golfer or a self-taught piano player because those are functions, But when we're talking about your identity, both your personal identity and your identity in Christ, those are not functions. And you do not develop a sense of identity in isolation. The sense of who you are and what you are is always developed in relationships with other people. That's why if you take a baby and you drop him off in the jungle, come back 20 years later, he's going to think he's a wolf. Why? Because that's who he built relationships with. And he developed a sense of his identity in conversation with the beings around him. And it's happened several times that babies were dropped off in the jungle and raised by wolves. And those, those kids, they think they're wolves. You know, they're growling and, you know, all that stuff. And so what tends to happen is that if we try to develop our sense of identity on our own, we end up with a false sense of identity and we can end up clinging to it for dear life. The fact of the matter is that if we are going to grow up in Christ, we need each other's help. You got to get that this morning. If you don't get anything else, get this, that if you are going to grow up in Christ, you need the help of the body of Christ. You are in desperate need of the body of Christ to help you grow up in Christ. Look at your neighbor say, if I'm going to grow up in Christ, I need your help. Come on, look at somebody else say, if I'm going to grow up in Christ, I need your help. Now look at somebody else say, if you're going to grow up in Christ, you need my help. Come on, somebody. Now the text of scripture I want to look at this morning is the book of Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 14 through 16. And in this passage of scripture, Paul, beginning in verse 11, begins to talk about what we call the fivefold ministry. First, he says that Jesus descended into the lower parts of the earth, speaking of his incarnation, the virgin birth, and his crucifixion and burial, his death, burial, and, and his death and burial. That's his descending into the lower parts of the earth. Then he says he ascended on high, speaking first of his resurrection from the dead, and secondly of his ascension into the heavens to sit at the right hand of God. And it says when he ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. And he talks about the gifts that he gave to men. And Paul defines them as the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the pastor, and the teacher. Paul gave, God gave, Jesus gave in his ascension to heaven. He gave gifts to the body of Christ. And those gifts are the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the pastor, and the teacher. And then Paul explains why Christ gives those gifts to the body of Christ. And the first reason that God gives these gifts to the body of Christ is for the edification of the body. That is to build up the body of Christ. So he says he puts these men and women of God in the body of Christ so that the body of Christ can be built up. And how do they build up the body of Christ? They build up the body of Christ through their words. They speak words that build up the body of Christ. They bring the word of the Lord to the people of God. And the people of God are built up through that word of God. Amen. 
But then the second reason for which God gives apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers is for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. Now, what is the work of ministry? The work of ministry is the work of building up the body of Christ. And how do the people build up the body of Christ? By taking the word that was given to them by the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers and beginning to reproduce that word in their relationships so that they build up the body of Christ the same way the apostolic leaders build up the body of Christ through their words. So this is what Paul says. It starts with the leaders speaking the word of God, and then the people get a hold of that word and possess it in such a way that they reproduce that word in their relationships with others. And when the leaders speak, they build up the body. And when the people speak, they build up the body. Now, what what tends to break down in certain local churches is that, number one, either the leader is tearing down the body through his words instead of building it up, or the leader builds up the body with their words, and the people turn around and tear it down with their words. And that kind of church cannot grow up. But it is when the people begin to embrace and fully possess the word that is coming to them from the Lord, a word that is a word that builds up rather than a word that tears down. And Paul was very clear to say that the authority I have in Christ is not the authority to tear you down. It is only the authority to build you up. And I build you up through the words that God has given me. But when the people embrace, fully possess, and then reproduce those words in the body, then the body is built up and the body can come to maturity. So it's not enough to come to the house of God and simply receive the word as a consumer who tastes and sees that the preacher is good. You cannot You cannot be a consumer of the word. You must be a reproducer of the word. You come to church not to taste and see, but to get pregnant. And when you leave the house, you go to give birth. And you got to give birth to that word and reproduce it in all of your relationships. And that is how the body of Christ is being built up. Now he gets to verse 14 and he explains it a little bit further. In verse 14 he says, Then we will no longer be infants. Can somebody say amen? Amen. How many say, I'm tired of being an infant. And I'm tired of the body of Christ being a bunch of crying babies. Paul says, then we will no longer be infants. And I know that I didn't get any amens when I said, how many say I'm tired of being an infant? Because nobody here thinks they're an infant. But then Paul says, let me define an infant for you. He says, an infant is one who is tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by the wind. You come to church and you get excited. You say amen. And then you go off and one thing goes wrong and you're blown over. Oh, blown into the place of discouragement and blown into the place of despair and blown into the place. Blown here and blown there and blown here and blown. They can't stand your ground. Can't hold your place. That is spiritual infancy. I had a young man call me recently, just a couple of weeks ago, and he said, Pastor, I think I've decided to become an atheist. I said, the devil is a liar. I said, why have you decided to become an atheist? He said, because I tried to evangelize my atheist friend. And he gave me some literature that posed some questions that I had never thought of before. And he ended up convincing me. That what I've been believing all this time is wrong. I said, then we will no longer be infants. I had to sit down with this young man and explain the most basic, foundational, low-level stuff. Been in Christ for so long, but just swept not only to a place of discouragement, but even walking away from your Christian faith because of what one person said or what you read. You know, some people watch YouTube videos and that's where they get their theology from. 
You know, because some YouTube video said the Bible was written by the Illuminati or some foolishness like that. And next thing you know, they're posting it on their wall. Everybody must see this. Well, I just saw it last night and it convinced me. You're convinced by a YouTube video? Listen, you need to go, go drop some roots in the body of Christ and get your teaching from the right place. Come on, somebody. Paul says, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Verse 15, instead, look at your neighbor say instead. Instead. Means there's an alternative to all this foolishness. Instead, speaking the truth in love. Look at your neighbor say, speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. By speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head. Only by speaking the truth in love is it possible for us to grow To become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head. Now we got to talk about this for a moment. What does it mean to speak the truth in love? Now, if we're going to understand what it means to speak the truth in love, we must understand that there are two components to it. Truth and love. Real deep, right? Real deep. (laughs) And you've got to understand both components if you're going to learn how to do it. The fact of the matter is that truth without love is not really true. And love without truth is not really love. One refutes the other in isolation. Each of these entities are self-refuting without the other. They need the two to work together for any one of them to function properly. Truth has no way to function apart from love. And love has no power apart from truth. Okay? Now, let's start with truth. What's it mean to speak the truth? Is it hot in here or is it just me? Okay, somebody turned down. To, I, need a, I need a, come on, come on. Thank you. So, what's it mean to speak the truth? Let me tell you something. There's a difference between speaking the truth and Telling the truth. Follow me. Truth is not honesty. There is a distinction between truth and honesty. Telling the truth is simply being honest about the way you feel. But what if what you feel is a lie? If what you are feeling is based upon a lie and you're simply telling the truth about what you feel, you're simply being honest about the fact that you're living in a lie. (coughs) Telling the truth and speaking the truth are two different things. And telling the truth is what we call authenticity. And authenticity is one of the greatest, one of the highest virtues of our culture. Because you've got to be yourself. You got to do it your way. You got to have it your way right away. You got to be true to yourself. You got to be honest about how you feel. You got to keep it real. 
You know what I'm saying? You got to keep it real. And sometimes you're keeping it real and you're just keeping it real wrong. Sometimes in our keeping it real, we're simply perpetuating a lie and using authenticity as an excuse for it. But we cannot make authenticity an excuse for our foolishness. You hearing me this morning? So we've got to move from, t- from, from telling the truth to speaking the truth. Because when you tell the truth, you reveal what you feel. But when you speak the truth, you reveal what is right. And it's true, sometimes what you're feeling isn't right. And so in that case, you need to move from telling the truth to speaking the truth. Sometimes I start out telling the truth, but immediately shift to speaking the truth. In other words, I might tell the truth. Right now, I'm just going to keep it real. I don't feel like God loves me right now. Just keeping it real. I don't feel like anybody in this room loves me right now. Matter of fact, I walked in this church this morning, and I just felt like nobody here likes me. I don't even know why I'm here. I'm just keeping it real. That's just how I feel. Speaking, that's telling the truth. Now I'm going to shift to speaking the truth. But you know what? I know that that stuff is a lie. And I can't keep walking in that garbage. I've been believing that, and that has held me back for 10 years. I've gone from church to church to church to church, and that lie always pushes me out of the next church because I believe that, that I've just been believing this lie that I'm not accepted there and that I need to leave. And that's a lie of the devil. So I'm going to speak the truth now and shift myself out of that garbage and into the truth. Now, authenticity becomes real authenticity, true authenticity, when what you feel is in alignment with what is right. If I wake up and say, I feel like God loves me, I've just told the truth and spoken the truth, and and those two truths are the same truth. And when I'm speaking the truth and telling the truth at the same time, and they're the same truth, now I'm mature. Authenticity is overrated. (laughs) There's another side to it. Speaking the truth in love, Paul says. Speaking the truth in love, because there comes a point at which you can speak the truth, but not in love. The thing we need to understand is that speaking the truth in love is never an individualist endeavor. See, I used to think that when Paul said, I got to speak the truth in love, it simply means that I, as an individual, need to begin to confess God's truth over my trial. That is, I'm going through a trial, but I need to confess God's truth and that God's truth takes precedence over my trial. To speak the truth simply means to declare that the reality of the, the lower reality of my experience is always trumped by the higher reality of God's promise. And that's speaking the truth in love. But what I've begun to realize is that I can't speak the truth in love to myself. Why? Because love is never an individualist reality. It is always a corporate reality. You can't experience love in a room all by yourself. you got to interact with somebody. At least you got to interact with God. You can experience love with God in a room, but love is always a corporate reality, never a self-reality. And yes, I know you can love yourself, but you can only love yourself in relationship with others. When you walk in a room and you feel like, I'm insignificant here. I don't have anything to add to this body. Nobody wants anything that I've got. You're refusing to love yourself and blaming everybody else for it. Everybody else is rejecting me. No, stop rejecting yourself. Loving yourself means walking in a room and saying, everybody here loves me. I just assume everybody loves me when I walk in the room. I just walk, I'm loved. (laughs) Anybody who smiles, they're smiling at me. 
They just love me. I'm just loved here. Hey, how you doing? And you know what? If you don't look like you love me, I'll force myself on you. Hey, how are you? Yeah, it's nice for you to meet me. No, I won't say that, but <laughs> what I'm saying is you've got to have a healthy self-love. A healthy sense of your own value and your own significance in relationship with others. But speaking the truth in love can only happen when, when you speak to someone else about them or someone else speaks to you about you. It's not an individualist reality. It is always a corporate reality. Okay? Now, I'll give you an example. I want to I flesh this out. My wife and my baby and I went to New York City a couple weeks ago. You all know that, right? And you all know that we had a wonderful time, right? Well, we also had a terrible time. And I didn't tell you about the terrible time yet. <laughs> Two realities. We had a wonderful time and a terrible time, simultaneously and at the same time. It was one time with two sides to it. Now, we had a wonderful time. Why? Because we were in New York, baby. We were in the NYC. Come on, somebody. We had an awesome time. It was like the pizza, the pizza, you know, the pizza. That's all I got to say is the pizza. The hot New York hot dogs are overrated. But the pizza, don't get it twisted. There is nothing like it. New York pizza. So we had a wonderful time seeing the sights and, and, you know, but we also had a terrible time. And we had a terrible time because we had a four-year-old with us. Pray my strength in the Lord. First component of that terrible time was how many know that New York City is expensive? Okay? And finding a hotel in New York City is expensive. Okay, I would have slept in somebody's car if they would have let me. Okay, I mean, it was that expensive. And so I was searching for weeks to find a hotel room that we could afford. And, you know, stuff was like $400 a night. And that's not, you think, you think if you're spending $400 a night, you got like a, a suite, you know. No, that's for, that's, you know, just a regular room. You know, that's just a regular room. And so I hunted and hunted and hunted until I found a, a, a room for $211 a night in Midtown. You know, because my only, my only criteria was not in the ghetto. That was my only criteria, not in the ghetto. We ain't sleeping in the ghetto, you know. Because last time I was in New York, I was 12 years old, and we got a hotel in the ghetto. And some folks got stabbed outside our window that night. You know, it was like, no, no I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not doing that to my, my baby. is not going to experience that New York. So we got a hotel in Mid Midtown for $211 a night. And I was crying, but I, I was thankful at the same time. And so, um, but it was a shoebox. I mean, it was little. It's like you might as well open up a drawer in your dresser and say, there's your hotel room, pile on in. And it was me, my wife, and my daughter, okay? And so now my daughter is four years old, okay? She's four, all right? You know what that means? Do you know how much energy a four-year-old has? I mean, for God's sake, okay? So there was no room for her to run around and play in this room. It was just, you open the door, you're in the bed. I mean, that's the room, like, you know? You roll out of the bed, you're on the toilet. I mean, it's like that, you know. I mean, it was that, that little, right? And my daughter is constantly running and jumping and climbing. And, she, and since she had nothing else to run on, she ran on me. And because she had no other place to jump, she jumped on me. And because she had nothing else to climb on, I became her jungle gym. Now, in, the, in just the normal, everyday reality, my wife, my daughter loves to climb on me. I mean, there's something about a little girl. She just loves 
daddy's physical body. She just needs physical proximity of her daddy. And so if my daughter was here right now, she'd be climbing on me. I mean, that's just what she does. She climbs up on my back and climbs up on my shoulders and then jumps down on the couch and then does the whole thing all over again. And normally I love it. Normally I love it. I love it. I like it. It makes me feel like a dad. And I feel close to my daughter. It's like bonding time. But in New York, it was too much. And it was getting on my nerves. Will you stop it? She was sleeping in between her mommy and I. And at first, we're all parallel. One, two, three. But as the night progresses, she begins to rotate until she's perpendicular. And her head is at mommy's head and her feet are in my face. One night, I was awakened in the middle of the night because she axe-kicked me in the temple as hard as she could. I mean, I'm laying there, and all of a sudden, bam! I'm, what? What? My wife's like, baby, calm down. I'm like, you don't know what just happened! I thought I was being attacked. I had a headache for the rest of the night. Now, our days... What do we do? We walked like 10 hours a day. In New York City, it's like 118 degrees out there. You know? And my daughter, the first day, we had to walk 13 blocks to go to FAO Schwartz. We were on 46th. No, we were on 36th. We were going to 59th. We had to walk 23 blocks. Three blocks into the walk, my daughter, I'm tired. I don't want to walk anymore. Daddy, hold me. Hold me. I'm like, no, you're going to walk. It is 117 degrees out here. You are going to walk. Fine, come here. Pick her up. Pick her up. Do you know I carried her for like eight hours that day? By the end of the day, I felt like my back was going to break off and I was going to become two people. And what was she doing? She was taking naps. By the end of the day, I had slobber all over my chest, all over my shirt. And I was so tired. We got back to that hotel room. I said, baby, first thing in the morning, we're buying a stroller. <laughs> Next morning, we bought a stroller. And you know what? She's taking naps and that's... Yeah, come on, somebody. <laughs> I tell you, I was singing praises to Jesus the moment we purchased that stroller. I said, this is the best purchase I've ever made in my life. See, I would have paid him $800 for that stroller at that point. <laughs> I didn't care. We are getting a stroller. But she was taking naps during the day, and she, you know, she's crying for this and crying for that, and I want this and I want that, and she's climbing on daddy and kicking daddy and screaming daddy, and, blah, blah. and we're going and we're seeing everything and we're having a ball, but by the end of the week, and then got on the plane to come home, six-hour flight, and she wanted to play the whole flight. You know what it's like having a four-year-old on a plane for six hours? Oh, my goodness. By the time we got home, I was ready to shoot myself with a bazooka. In the face. <laughs> and you know, I'm normally a, a nice guy. I, I'm normally a really patient and loving and warm, and especially to my daughter. You know, I'm, I'm, no, I'm normally just the most loving father, gentle, firm when I need to be, you know, but mostly just warm and loving. By the time we got home from New York, I was the worst father on planet Earth. I mean, I was snapping at her. I was mad at her. I couldn't handle any, everything she did just put me over the top. Everything she did. And I was telling my wife, I need a vacation from my daughter. I need you to send her to my mom's. I need, a, I need some space. 
And so, um, two days after we get home, my daughter wakes up in the middle of the night, 2 p.m., 2 a.m., and she's mad at mommy and daddy. Why? Because she peed on herself. <laughs> Why are you mad at me? Because you peed on you. I didn't pee on you. <laughs> mommy didn't pee on you. I mean, we're trying to help you. We're changing you. And we're changing your bedding. This little last piece of potty training we're taking her through right now. We are tr- we're trying to help you. And she's mad and she's screaming and she's crying. And so I said, okay, baby, this isn't right. Mommy and daddy are trying to help you. You shouldn't be getting mad at mommy and daddy. Mommy and daddy are trying to take care of you right now. You woke mommy and daddy up in the middle of the night. What did that do? Do you think that helped her? No. Ah! Now she's screaming. It's like, okay, okay, Alethea, stop it. Listen, there's more people in this house than us. Okay? Ade is in the next room. Ade has to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning and go pick chilies or fruit or something. You know, Ade, it's not fair. Let the man sleep. You know? And she starts screaming louder. I'm like, Alethea, Alethea. Uncle Dunam is upstairs. He's got to sleep. He's got to go to work in the morning. Alethea, be quiet. Ah! Now she's screaming louder. Alethea. If you keep screaming, I'm going to give you a timeout. Do you need a timeout? Now she's crying even louder. Finally, I pick her up, take her into the, into the family room, drop her on the couch, and go back to the room and close the door behind me and get in the bed. I thought, you know what? We're going to practice the cry it out method tonight. We're going to let her cry it out. But after about one minute, I heard her screaming this. You hurt my feelings, Daddy. You hurt my feelings, Daddy. So I went in the room, went in the room. I sat down next to her. I said, did Daddy hurt your feelings? Yeah. Daddy's sorry. Daddy's sorry for hurting your feelings. You want Daddy to hold you? Daddy's sorry for holding your feelings. And then I sang her the Alethea song. Alethea, saranga, kinchana, beangopa, choliowa, himduro, chareso, baby. I know it makes no sense. I took all eight Korean words I know and strung them together and made a song out of it. (laughs) (laughs) Koreans hear the song. That didn't make any sense. I'm like, I know, I know. She don't know the difference. <laughs> Within five minutes, she was asleep. I laid her down in her bed, and I went back to sleep. And we, we repeated the whole thing three hours later at 5 a.m. because she peed on herself a second time. <laughs> the next afternoon, my wife and I are driving. My wife says, baby, you know what? I've done a little bit of studies, and I realized that what we're doing with the Lathia isn't helping her right now. I said, well, who's going to help me? See, everybody wants to help her. <laughs> Somebody needs to help me. <laughs> what about me? <laughs> My wife says, here's the problem. When children throw a tantrum, especially surrounding a task that they're being asked to do, it's because they don't, now, they don't know how to organize their emotions around that task. So if we say, brush your teeth, 
and she throws, she resists, she throws a tantrum, she doesn't want to do it. It's because the task seems overwhelming to her, and she doesn't understand how to organize her emotions around that task. And so children will never learn how to organize their emotions around a task until an adult takes the time to mediate that task for them by first and foremost synchronizing with their emotions and from that place of synchronization bringing a healthy form of correction. I said, give me an example. She said, so Alethea wants to brush her teeth. You tell Alethea to brush her teeth and she resists. She starts to cry. First of all, synchronize with her emotions. Sit down with her and say, Alethea, you don't want to brush your teeth, do you? No, no. I know why you don't want to brush your teeth, because you just want to play. And brushing your teeth just interrupts your playing, huh? Yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. But baby, you know what happens if you don't brush your teeth? They rot and fall out. <laughs> you get cavities. And then the dentist and Dr. Carrington has to drill your teeth out. <laughs> put braces on you. <laughs> See, I tell her that Dr. Carrington's going to get you if you don't brush your teeth off. <laughs> That's why she doesn't run to you, Kev. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just playing. <laughs> you might have to do that a thousand times, but at a certain point in that process, an internal locus of control begins to take initiative, and suddenly she becomes emotionally competent to complete the task on, our, on her own, apart from a threat of punishment, like a timeout or a spanking. And so in every place where there is a need for maturity in a stage of my daughter's life, or any human being, there's a need for mediation. That is, some adult needs to synchronize which is an establishment of connection. Another word for that synchronization is empathy. Meaning you begin by feeling what that individual feels. And through that empathy, you, you establish a connection. You cannot bring a correction until you've established a connection. Empathy connects us with one another, but anger and frustration disconnects us with, from one another. And if I try to bring a disconnected correction, it does more damage than good. But if I establish a connection and then bring a correction, it actually imparts knowledge to the depth of her being and helps her mature as a human person. So we got to practice because my daughter has learned how to be a liar. She's discovered the world of lying. And she's good at it, like, at a young age, seemingly self-taught. <laughs> you would have think she went to school to learn it. So the other day, she comes down to my wife. She says, Mommy, can I have some ice cream? She said, where's your daddy? She said, he's upstairs. Go ask your daddy. If he says yes, you can have it. If he says no, you can't have it. Okay. She comes upstairs. Daddy, how long are you going to be up here? I said, about 10 minutes. And then you're going downstairs? Yep. Okay. Bye-bye. She goes back downstairs. Mommy, Daddy said yes. <laughs> but he said I can't have it until he comes downstairs. <laughs> 10 minutes later, I come downstairs and I go in the room. Lathia goes, come on, Mommy. Let's go get ice cream. She goes, what? Why didn't you ask Daddy to give it to you? No, no. Daddy said I can't have it until he comes downstairs. <laughs> 
what? My wife comes in the room. How come you didn't just give her ice cream? I said, what? What are you talking about? Why'd you tell her she can't have it till you come downstairs? I didn't say that. What are you talking about? Didn't she just ask you for ice cream? No, she just asked me when I was coming downstairs. I wouldn't have given her ice cream anyway. I gave it to her an hour ago. She can't have more ice cream. Now, wait a minute. You see what she did there? There's this goal, this objective. She has a vision. She said, I have a dream that one day me and ice cream are going to become one flesh. (laughs) But she had a problem. Because she knows daddy ain't going to give her ice cream. So in her mind, she says, okay. I could see her making a chart in her mind. Ice cream. But a... There's an obstacle in the path of ice cream. It's daddy. So how do I move daddy out of the kitchen, move mommy into the kitchen, and facilitate the ice cream transaction without the interference of daddy? And she figured it out in her head. All I got to do is get daddy downstairs and get mommy upstairs, and I'm free at last. Thank God Almighty. So we had to sit her down. She's a criminal mastermind at four years old. I said, wow. How did you come up with that? By yourself? I said, Alethea, you wanted ice cream, huh? Mm-hmm. Because ice cream is really good, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Synchronization. Now, don't get me wrong. That wasn't my instinct. Because I am from East Oakland. And I am, believe it or not, black. But I say believe it or not, because folks swear I'm not black. By the way, can I give you a lesson in racial sensitivity? Don't tell a light-skinned black person that they're not black. Please. You're not really black. Really, then what am I? Am I Chinese? Do I look Filipino? Well... You're mixed. Yes, I was born in Mixville, the nation of Mixville in a city called Lightskindia. Mixed is not an ethnicity. What am I mixed with? Well, black and exactly. I'm black. Don't mess with the light-skinned brother's blackness. You know, all it takes is somebody to get a suntan. You know, when you're light-skinned, you become the standard for suntans. Oh, a white person get a suntan. Oh, you're, you're darker than Benjamin. Oh, look at Wow, look at him. He's darker than Benjamin. What's that supposed to mean? I applied for a job one time, and the guy hired me over the phone, and I showed up at the job, and he goes, No offense, but are you black? I said, yeah, I'm black. (laughs) Free Africa. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) And he goes, because you didn't sound black over the phone. I said, really, what does black sound like? Can you just give me a little rendition so I can just understand what black sounds like? Because I didn't know you could hear a color. (laughs) Anyway. Oh, Lord. Where's the pastor going? Suddenly he thinks he's Elijah Muhammad. 
Don't go down that road, pastor. I know, I know. You know, I, 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 that's why I thank God we have a multi-ethnic church. Because there's so many different perspectives. It's a richness. And you know what I love is that looking out at this church, there's no sense of ethnic predominance. I mean, look around. We're predominantly what? Human. <laughs> Come on, somebody. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Ha. Slave nor free. Ha. Male nor female. Ha. Yeah. Ha. <laughs> And I said that in the blackest way possible. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I'm getting on a tangent. What was I talking about? So, I grew up in East Oakland and in, in an African-American family. And there's a particular way that African-American families in East Oakland handle things like kids lying. <laughs> See, my mother, my mother kept a pancake turner in the glove compartment. And we'd be fooling around in the back seat. All you hear is a click. <laughs> now, when we heard the click of the glove compartment drawer, it was, you might as well have heard the click of a pistol. <laughs> because that's all the warning you were going to get. Click, and the next thing you knew, you had three lines going down your forehead. So when my daughter told a lie, I had a particular... Um, reflex that I had to resist and overcome in order to handle this the way my wife taught me the day before that I needed to handle it. So we sat down. We said, you wanted ice cream, didn't you? She goes, yeah. Ice cream's good, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, ice cream's really good. Daddy loves ice cream, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh-huh. But you can't tell a lie in order to get ice cream. You realize you just lied to your mommy and told her daddy said yes when he didn't say yes? You know what happens if you lie, right? Your teeth are going to rot and fall out of your... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, 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 uh. Why am I telling you all these stories about my daughter? Well, very simple. This guy named James Wilder, he has an, a website called lifemodel.org. He's done all kinds of research in human development. and he's, he's a neurologist, but also a theologian. He puts them together, and he does neurotheology. Really, really powerful stuff. He studies the brain, the development of the brain. And Jim Wilder says that there's five stages of human development. It starts with the infant stage. And the primary task of the infant stage is learning how to receive love without needing to give it in return. The task of being an infant, your infant has one job, to get loved, to be loved, to feel loved and accepted, to know that they're a delight. And so synchronizing with your infant means simply looking into their eyes and smiling as often as possible. Communicating joy. Do you know that when you look in the eyes of an infant and you smile... You know what happens? There's six, six cycles of dopamine released in their brain every second, meaning they're feeling love before they're even aware of the fact that they're feeling loved. And so when an infant is loved like that, constantly being taught you are a joy, you are a delight, that is the fundamental lesson of the infancy stage. The childhood stage is the second stage, and the, the fundamental lesson of the childhood stage is learning how to take care of yourself. And so when the child, your child is learning how to take care of themselves, they're learning how to take care of their bathroom needs and learning how to wash themselves and learning how to dress themselves, learning how to put themselves to bed, learning how to feed themselves, learning about all of their needs, learning how to get something to drink when they need something to drink. The, the goal of the childhood stage is learn how to take care of yourself. The next stage is the adult stage, and the, and the goal of the adult stage is to learn how to take care of yourself and one other person. That is to learn how to be responsible for more than yourself, but to be responsible for somebody else. 
The next stage is the parent stage, and the goal of the parent stage is to learn how to give without needing to receive anything in return. How to take care of children without needing to receive anything in return. That is the mark of a mature parent. Is a, a mature parent is able to give without receiving, which is the opposite of infancy, whereas a, a mature infant can receive without needing to give. A mature parent can give without needing to receive. And then the elder stage, the mark of an elder is the ability to care for a whole community rather than simply to care for themselves or for one or two people, but to care for a whole community. But Jim Wilder says that these stages of human maturity are like slices of cheese and specifically like slices of Swiss cheese because there's holes. So you might be at the parent stage of maturity, but you might have a hole that goes all the way back to infancy. Why? Because somewhere in that stage of life for you, somebody didn't meet the need that you needed. There was nobody there to organize your emotions around one of the primary tasks of that stage. You might be an adult and you find that you still have trouble washing your clothes. You can't organize your emotions around the task of washing your clothes. And so you wait till they'll pile, they pile up and you're on your last pair of drawers. Then all of a sudden you need to do laundry. <laughs> Somebody needed to mediate you through that task of doing your laundry to teach you that it's actually not as big of a deal as you think it is. You're overwhelmed by it, and somebody needs to help you get unoverwhelmed by it, help you organize your emotions around that task. And so what happens is that we're adults, and we're parents, and we're even some elders in our community, but we have holes, and all of us have holes in our cheese. Every single one of us, and you know what occupies that empty space where you got a hole in your cheese? Foolishness. <laughs> the foolishness in our lives is as the result of the holes in our cheese. But the thing we need to understand is that foolishness comes from two different places. Proverbs chapter 22 says foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. And so the primary source of foolishness is the, the heart of a child. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of direction shall drive it far from him. I memorized that verse when I was a tender age of six because my mother quoted it to me every time she gave me a whooping. And so I know that verse backward and forward, inside and out. <laughs> in, in the Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. I can exegete. But the second source of foolishness is the heart of a fool. In Proverbs 27 Solomon says, though you grind a fool in a mortar with a pestle along with grain, yet you will not extract his foolishness from him. And so what's the difference between a child and a fool? A child responds to correction, a fool does not. That's the only difference. They can do the same things. That's why sometimes parents say to their kids, you are acting like fools. You might be acting like a fool, but it's yet to, we're, we're yet to see if you are one or not. The question is, do you respond to correction? And the difference, if we look at this carefully, a child is simply one who is willing to allow another to speak the truth and love to them so that they can grow up. And Jesus said that unless we embrace the kingdom of heaven like a child, we will not enter into it. We must become like children in our relationships with one another or we will never grow up in Christ. Amen. What does that mean? We need other members of the body of Christ to speak the truth to us in love. Amen. 
And that's the only way that I'm going to begin to fill the holes in my cheese with cheese and not foolishness. Now, I know a lot of times you might see a big hole in your cheese where there's a little eight-year-old. goes all the way back to when you were six years old, baby. And you might think, man, I thought I was an adult. I'm acting like a six-year-old. It doesn't mean you're not at that level of maturity. It simply means you got a hole in your cheese that you need Christ to fill. Now, how we typically respond to holes in our cheese, because you know what? All of us know where the holes in our cheese are, most of them. There's some of them you don't know, but you know where the big ones are. And if you were to sit down and write down on a piece of paper, what are the holes in your cheese? You could write it down. All you got to do is look for foolishness. If I went on an expedition looking for foolishness in your life, I would find some in everybody here. And if you went looking for some in my life, you'd find it too. We all have foolishness. Every time I get in a fight with my wife, I'm reminded of that. Because <laughs> right after the fight, she sends an email to Pastor Daniels. He called me the next morning. What did you say to your wife? How did you know? Because she emailed me at 1 a.m. last night. Now stop your foolishness and go back and tell her you're sorry. I was with him the night before last. I told you the story about when I didn't give my wife a bite of my sandwich. I never told you that story. My wife and I were having lunch. I'm going to do this real quick. My wife and I were having lunch with a young couple. And I was going to order the food. I said, baby, and it was a young couple. We had never met with them before. And I, I said, baby, what do you want to eat? She goes, I don't want anything. I just want a couple bites of your sandwich. I said, well, that's not going to happen. So what do you want me to order you to eat? She goes, I don't want anything. I just want a couple bites of your sandwich. I said, I'll tell you what we're going to do. I'll order you a sandwich and me a sandwich. You can take a couple bites of that sandwich. And whatever you don't eat of that sandwich, I will eat. She said, I don't want a whole sandwich for myself. And I don't want you to eat two sandwiches. I just want two bites of your sandwich. I said, well, that is not happening, so let's rethink this. And then suddenly I was under the conviction of the Lord. <laughs> and I realized the foolishness of my ways. That night, I got home. I said, baby, I'm sorry. I was wrong. She said, yeah, you were. And we talked through it, and I told Pastor Daniels about it the next day. He said, Benjamin, you know what your problem is? I said, what? He said, you always want to do big things for your wife. You want to take her to New York. You want to buy her a new computer. You want to get her a new car. But what she's looking for is the little things, and you're not willing to do the little things. You're willing to take her to New York, but you wouldn't give her a bite of your sandwich. The Bible says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. You're supposed to lay down your life for her. You can't even lay down your sandwich. I was so convicted. But then I was with him the night before last. He said, I got to confess something. I said, what's up? He said, two days ago, I was eating an ice cream sundae. And my wife said, let me have a bite of that sundae. And he goes, Benjamin, as hard as I tried, I couldn't do it. <laughs> He said, and it wasn't until it was over that I realized that I had just rebuked you for that a couple months ago. He said, I'm never rebuking anybody again for anything. <laughs> the point is, we all got it. We all got it. Come on. We all got it. And we all need each other. I needed him to speak to my foolishness that day. 
And it's just that if we learn how to speak the truth in love, then maybe we can come out of hiding. Because you know what? There's a lot of us in this room right now that are hiding. (laughs) Involved in foolishness all week long, but 10 minutes before church starts, you put it away and put on a nice suit and go to church. (laughs) Sorry. In the car fighting with the wife all the way up until you get to the church parking lot. Hey, brother so-and-so, I talk, hi! We talk afterward. Oh, God bless you. Oh, we're just so blessed in the Lord. And everybody looking at you, oh, you're such a beautiful family. Oh, yes, this is my beautiful wife. We're going to talk after this church is over. <laughs> or what if you came in? Yes, smile at people. Take somebody aside that you trust and say, we're going to need you guys to pray for us. Because we've been engaging in some foolishness this morning. Doesn't mean you've got to wear it on your sleeve and show the whole community. Walk in. I'm mad at her. Tell the whole church. No. But is there somebody in the house that you can take aside and say, I've got to tell you something. Don't tell everybody. But is there somebody you can take aside? Go to your lay pastor. Go to your, and not even that, you know, the whole thing about pastors. We are not Roman Catholic. You don't have to confess to the priest. Amen. James said, confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. Just find somebody else in the house that you trust. Take them in a room and say, pray for us. Pray for us. We need some prayer. Today, right now. Let me ask you the question. When was the last time you submitted yourself to another member of the body so that they can speak the truth to you in love. If you don't let anybody speak the truth to you in love, you're not growing up. I don't care how mature you think you are. You think you're so mature, nobody can speak to you anymore. And that is the mark of mature ignorance. But a really mature believer will always be open for someone to speak the truth to them in love. Always. How do we create an atmosphere of safety? By learning how to synchronize with one another. Truth is not enough. You've got to speak it in love. Nobody cares if you're right. When I told Alethea, you've got to be quiet. Other people in this house have to sleep. That was right. But it wasn't in love. I was giving her the truth, but not in love. And so it couldn't help her mature. We need truth, but we need love. And when we put the two together, we'll no longer be infants. We'll no longer be tossed to and fro by every wave, by every wind. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in every respect grow up in all things into him who is the head, even Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray today in the name of the Lord Jesus that you would strengthen every weary heart. God, there's some in this room right now that just feel like, God, I'm so sick of my foolishness. So sick and tired of dealing with this stuff. 
so easy for us to see our own immaturity. God, some of us can't see our own immaturity because we're so busy judging the immaturity of others. But God, I pray that you would give us sober-mindedness, sobriety, that we'd be aware of our own foolishness so that we can lovingly, patiently, gently help others grow up. And that is what discipleship is all about. Jesus, you commanded your disciples to make disciples of all nations by teaching them to obey. We need to learn how to teach each other to obey. Synchronizing with them and bringing connection through correction. Correction through connection. Teach them to obey. Lord, there's a degree to which you will teach us to obey in our prayer closets by ourselves, but there's also a degree to which you demand that we learn it in relationship with others. By submitting ourselves to the body of Christ. And God, I pray that you'd open every heart. I pray that you'd open every mind and every soul. I pray that you'd heal the hurt and the pain, the disillusionment and the grief, remove the abuse. bring wholeness and peace that you'd bring a sense of safety so that we would know that it's safe to step in the waters again make us the community of the spirit make us the assembly of God I just speak your blessing over each and every one and I give you all the glory for it in Jesus mighty name God bless you. We're dismissed.